chapter uh, 1. If you have a Bible, open there, verse 35. We're going to have to do two passes at this. I was naive enough to think I was going to cover this in one message, and then I got into it. And So there's going to be questions you have about the text I won't answer this morning. Hopefully next week uh, those questions will get answered, and uh, in two times through it we'll try to explain it all. Um, There should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages that have a lot of uh, verses and and also a link to a website I'm going to mention um, in the printed messages, and you can grab those either now or later if you want. And all those are online, the printed and the audio messages. Reading from uh, verse 35 down to verse 51 in the New American Standard Bible. Again the next day John was standing, that's John the Baptist, with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. And so they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You're Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. If you've never watched the film, The Gospel Blimp, I would encourage you to do so. It's an oldie, 1967. You can watch a fuzzy version of it online, which I did again this week. Um, And the uh, web connection is in the, the printed notes there. But The Gospel Blimp is a hilarious satire of some well-meaning but misguided uh, Christians. They're sitting in the backyard at a barbecue one night, and they look over the fence and see this guy's beer-drinking neighbors, and they think, say to one another, you know, we need to reach them with the gospel. 
Well, about that time, a blimp flies overhead, and they look up, and uh, one of the guys gets the idea, you know, we could use a blimp to preach the gospel to our whole city. And they all get excited about this idea, and uh, so they raise the money. Of course, a blimp is a big thing, needs a piece of land and a hangar, so they raise the money and buy the land and put up the hangar and get the blimp. And for all of this, you need a corporation to operate this thing, and you need a board of directors, and you need an office, and you know how that goes, on and on and on, all this stuff. And uh, the guy that came up with a plan, he quits his job and goes full-time with the blimp ministry. And um, they uh, slap a fancy name on it, you know, an international ministry, and eventually he's got to hire a PR agent, And the PR agent has to spiffy up his image, so he outfits him in this ridiculous-looking military-type outfit and labels him the commander and tries to promote his image. And that means he's got a hobnob with some very, um, you know, up-and-coming wealthy people. And so it means saying goodbye to his family for the weekend so he can go play golf with all these wealthy people. But, you know, the cause is worth it. So they finally get this blimp airborne, and they rain down on the city all these little cellophane-wrapped tracks to share the gospel. And, of course, people are uh, angry and irritated because they got to rake the stupid things off their yard. And uh, this doesn't seem to be working really well, even though they concentrated on the neighbor's yard. And uh, so then they decide to hook a loudspeaker up to the, the blimp, and they blare down obnoxious songs and messages that relate as not at all to the people of the town. Meanwhile, there's one guy who gets a little bit uh, bothered by some of the stuff going on in the blimp ministry, and he leaves the board of the blimp. And um, <clears throat> the next thing you know, one somebody on the board of the blimp sees that guy that left, of all things, going to the beach with his neighbor, and they had a cooler, and he's sure that he saw the neighbor putting beer in the cooler. And they're concerned that this neighbor is going worldly. And so, anyway, to give you the end of the story in the movie, by the end of the movie, he's led his neighbor to Christ, and the people in the blimp still don't get it. Uh, As I said, it's a satire, no relation to reality, of course. But um, the message in that movie is the best way to share Christ with your neighbor is to befriend him and tell him about Jesus. And that's really the message of our text, that because Jesus is the Savior that everyone needs, friends bring friends to him. John the Baptist begins the cycle by pointing two of his disciples, Andrew, and probably the unnamed one is John. He never names himself John the Apostle uh, in the Gospel of John. And John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God, they follow Jesus. Next thing, Andrew first finds his brother Peter and brings him to Jesus. Jesus finds Philip and says to him, follow me. Philip immediately finds Nathanael and tells him in verse 45, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets, and also the prophets wrote, 
Nathaniel is skeptical at first, but um, Philip gives a great answer. Come and see. Come and see. And so he comes, Nathaniel comes and meets Jesus. And <clears throat> it's just a chain of events in which all of these men's lives are drastically changed because they meet the Savior as friend brings friend to Jesus. Now, the main thing in the text, and it may be something you would miss until I point it out to you, but it extols Jesus as the only Savior that everyone needs. And uh, the Gospel of John is all about who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. And the first chapter gets this running start in telling us, just to do a quick review, we saw in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the eternal Word who was in the beginning with God and who himself was God. Uh, I didn't put it in the notes, but in verse 3, he is the Creator. But in verse 4 of John 1, Jesus has life in him. That life is the light of men. Uh, in verse 9, he is the true light that lightens, enlightens every man. In verse 12, he is the one who gives eternal life uh, to uh, all that believe in him, gives them the right to become the children of God. In verse 14, the Word became flesh, so he is human, and he dwelt among us. John says, glorious as of the only begotten uh, Son of the Father. In the same verse, he is full of grace and truth. In the next verse, 15, he is greater than John the Baptist, who gives witness to Jesus. In verse 17, he is greater than Moses and the law. Uh, in verse 18, he is the only begotten God who explains the Father to us. In verse 23, he is the Lord. In verse 29 that we looked at last week, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Uh, also, we saw last time, he's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, verse 33. And in verse 34, he is the Son of God, or uh, some manuscripts read, the Chosen One of God. Now, our text is going to repeat the Lamb of God one and a few of the others for emphasis. But it brings out no fewer than 12 truths about who Jesus is as John shows us these five men who meet Jesus, and those two are connected. In other words, if Jesus is who he is presented to be in the Gospel of John, you've got to meet him. You've got to follow him because of who he is. And so there is this interrelationship between the two. Remember John's purpose for writing in John chapter 20. In verse 31, he said, I've written these things so that you might believe something about Jesus, namely that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And so again, same theme, it applies here. Who is Jesus? If he is who he claimed to be, then John reaches out by the lapels and grabs us and says, you've got to believe in him because of who he is. So let's look just uh, rapid fire at these 12 uh, things that John gives us of who Jesus is. The first one is a review from last week that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Verses 35 to 37. Again, the next day, 
John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Now you notice that John is mentioning here a sequence of days, the next day. And then verse 43, the next day, it actually began back in uh, verse 19. And since there seem to be seven days here, some scholars, and since John begins in exactly the same way that Genesis 1-1 begins, in the beginning was God, in the beginning was the Word, they are suggesting that uh, John is trying to lay out a new creation that now centers in Jesus Christ. Also, it's been pointed out that the sequence of days beginning in John 1:19 and running through chapter 2, verse 1, parallel to some degree the uh, last week of Jesus' life as outlined beginning in John chapter 12 and verse 1. And I don't have time to work through that this morning, but um, Merrill Tenney works that out in his commentary. And uh, at the very least, I think the next day, and then in verse 39, John mentions the 10th hour what you have here is a very vivid recollection by an eyewitness of these events. And it was so life-changing, life-impacting for John that he remembers it. You remember certain things in your life that were just life-changing. I, I remember January the 5th, 1974. I walked into a room and said, Hello, Marla. And I met my wife. And my life has never been the same. Uh, it changed my entire life for the good. And you remember events like that. And you should, anyway, husbands. <clears throat> and, uh, and so, you know, that's the, the impression that we get here uh, with uh, John. Now, last week we looked already at the Lamb of God. So I'm not going to take that apart for you phrase by phrase as I did, where John said in verse 29... Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But we saw that it focuses on Jesus as the collective gathering together of all of the Jewish sacrifices and that He is the one that every sinner needs as the um, supreme and final sacrifice for our sins. And so John the Baptist says this to his disciples I don't know if Andrew and John had missed it the day before, weren't there, or whatever, but this time it takes, they go, you know, I need a sacrifice for my sin, a final and complete sacrifice. Jesus is He, they follow Jesus. And so, every person is a sinner, every person needs a Savior, Jesus is the only Savior, so Jesus is the Lamb we should point them to. Secondly, Jesus is the teacher or rabbi, verse 38, again in verse 49. And John translates that term for his um, readers and says it means teacher. Rabbi was an honorary title that uh, Jewish students would give to their teachers. And uh, Jesus, you know, Nicodemus even called Jesus rabbi in chapter 3, but Jesus is the teacher par excellence. He is the supreme and final teacher, and so, of course, we all should be learning from him. Thirdly, Jesus is the Messiah, verse 41. And again, John translates the term 
for his non-Aramaic um, or Hebrew-speaking readers. In the New Testament, Messiah is used twice, here and in John 4.25. And in Hebrew, Messiah means anointed one. In Greek, um, Creo is the word to anoint, and so Christos is the anointed one, Christ. And so it's just the Hebrew or the Greek. Uh, in the Old Testament, the anointed one is used of the Hebrew kings. It is used of the high priest and of the patriarchs. Daniel, in Daniel um, chapter 9, his uh, prophecy of the 70 weeks mentions Messiah the prince. And so the anointed one is the title in the Old Testament for the one who is prophesied of who will be God's anointed prophet, priest, and king in one person. Fourthly, John says that Jesus is the authoritative Lord who uh, changes people for his sovereign purpose. We're looking here at verse 42. Andrew finds first his brother Peter, Simon, he brings him to Jesus, and then in verse 42 we read, Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. And again, John <clears throat> translates Cephas for his Greek readers. Cephas is the Aramaic word for rock, and Peter, of course, is the Greek word for rock. John's focus here, though, isn't so much on the meaning of that word. He doesn't explain to us what it means. It's rather on Jesus' authority to speak a word to someone and change that person's very identity in line with what Jesus wants that person to become for his kingdom purpose. Can you imagine meeting someone for the very first time and the first words out of his mouth are, You are Steve. I'm changing your name to such and such. I'm going, Whoa. I mean, that's unnerving. Does he have that right? I mean, I've been known as Steve all my life, and you're telling me I'm going to be somebody else? And Jesus does that with Peter. He doesn't say, uh, Peter, would it be okay with you if I changed your name? What do you think? How's rock sound, you know? Try that on. You know, you like the sound of that name? Rock. Think about it. Maybe we'll work something out. He doesn't do that. He just says, you're Simon. Now you're going to be Peter. Got it? And as the sovereign Lord, he can do that with us. He is the Lord who changes us for our good and his good for his purpose. Fifthly, Jesus is he of whom the Old Testament speaks. Verse 45, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote. And the law and the prophets is a common way of, of referring to the whole Old Testament. There are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that point to Jesus and many, many types like the tabernacle and things that point to Jesus. And uh, you remember that Jesus, after his resurrection, opened up the scriptures and showed the disciples in the scriptures all the places that spoke of him. It would have been a wonderful, wonderful uh, meeting to sit in on. <clears throat> Sixthly, uh, 
Philip says in verse uh, 45, Jesus is of Nazareth. He is the son of Joseph. The Apostle John uses irony often in his gospel, and I think this is an instance of it where he's kind of tongue-in-cheek. As you know, Jesus was not the son of Joseph, and he was from Bethlehem, conceived supernaturally in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It was commonly rumored that Jesus was born of fornication, Uh, But Philip describes Jesus in a way that brings out what we saw back in verse 14. Jesus is human. The Word became flesh. Um, Actually, he lived, grew up in Nazareth, not Bethlehem. And he was raised by Joseph, who was married to Mary. But uh, John Calvin points out, although Philip erroneously thought Jesus was a native of Nazareth and the son of Joseph, he introduces Nathanael to him who is the son of David and the son of God who was born in Bethlehem. And uh, maybe the application for us is, you know, sometimes our witness falls short. It's not quite at all it ought to be. And yet the Lord overrules it for his grace and saves them anyway and introduces them to Jesus as the one he truly is. Uh, In the seventh place, note that Jesus is the omniscient one who knows each person. Jesus sees Nathanael coming to him. Verse 47 says, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. And Nathanael is startled by the fact Jesus seems, seems to know him even before they met. And then Jesus adds in verse 48 something even more. Uh, disconcerting. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. He doesn't just mean I saw you from a distance and you didn't see me, but apparently Nathaniel had been sitting under a fig tree and he was meditating on the story in Genesis uh, 28 about Jacob's ladder. Uh, We'll see that in verse 51. And Jesus supernaturally saw him there, knew what he was meditating on, and brings it out. And as a response, in verse 49, Nathaniel declares, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. But the point is, Jesus has a way of unmasking us, a way of exposing to us what's deep down inside. Um... Later on, you remember Thomas doubts in the upper room and tells the disciples, as far as he knows, they're in private. Unless I put my finger in his wounds, I won't believe. Next week, Jesus shows up and says, put your finger in my wounds. He shows, I knew what you said last week. And he knows this all. And he knows everything about us. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13 says this. For the Logos of God, that's the Greek, it's the Word of God, is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, 
But all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. You ever had that experience? You're reading the Word of God and it just kind of lays your heart bare and you go, whoa, that's speaking about me. And the point is, we can't hide from God even if we want to. So why try? And the wonderful truth is this. Even though He knows every rotten thing that's deep down inside that maybe even other people don't know about you, He still loves you and He still wants to have a relationship with you and He still wants to transform you into His image. That's the good news of the Gospel. Eighth, Jesus is the Son of God, as Nathaniel declares. And it's a messianic title. In the Old Testament, Israel is God's Son. In John, Jesus is presented as the true Israel. Also, in the Old Testament, God declares that the Son of David would be God's Son, who would sit on the throne of David forever. And Nathaniel was probably thinking of that psalm, Psalm 2, where... The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand till I make you and your enemies and so on. Or or that's Psalm 110. Psalm 2 is um, that your son shall sit on my throne forever and so on. Now, John's gospel also shows a deeper understanding of son of God. He is not only David's son, he is David's Lord. And he is the eternal son of God. And so... As uh, D.A. Carson puts it, Nathaniel spoke better than he knew. (laughs) He didn't quite understand the depth when he says, you are the Son of God, that you are the eternal Son of God, but he was correct. And then Nathaniel also adds, Jesus is the King of Israel, verse 49. And that's a messianic term as well, speaking of the Davidic covenant and uh, that God would put a descendant of David on the throne forever. At this point, probably Nathaniel and the other disciples viewed Jesus as a political Messiah. That was their understanding. Messiah will come. He will liberate us from Rome. He will usher in the great time of peace and prosperity that our nation used to enjoy under David's reign. And they still need to learn what Jesus will tell Pilate. My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would be fighting, but it's not. But um, Leon Morris points out, he says, at least by acknowledging Jesus as the king of Israel, Nathaniel was acknowledging Jesus as his king. And of course, so should we. And then, tenthly, Jesus is the only bridge between heaven and earth. He tells Nathaniel in verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, You will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, in verse 50, when Jesus uses the pronoun you, he uses the singular in Greek. We don't have singular and plural pronouns in English. But in verse 51, the pronoun in Greek becomes plural. And so Jesus is broadening the promise of verse 51 to all the disciples. Also, this is the first time in John's Gospel that Jesus uses truly, truly. In Greek, it's amen, amen. And uh, John's Gospel is the only one that uses that double affirmation. And it means perk up. Something significant is going to follow. Listen to what Jesus is saying here. 
It's not just true, it's doubly true. And um, as I said, Nathaniel was probably sitting under the fig tree, meditating on the significance of Jacob's ladder and the angels of God ascending and descending. And Jesus says here, the angels are going to ascend and descend on the Son of Man. And it seems to me the point is, Jesus is the only bridge between heaven and earth. Jesus is the only way to the Father. He is the only link that connects uh, the eternal God with man. And by seeing the heavens open, Jesus is promising that the disciples are going to see even greater spiritual truth. But we can only know the Father when we believe in Jesus the Son. Then 11th, Jesus is the dwelling place of God with us, verse 51. And this term also stems from um, the imagery of Jacob's ladder. In uh, Genesis, as Jacob is, sees this vision, this dream, he wakes up and says in Genesis 28:16, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I didn't know it. And then he adds in verse 17, This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And so it says he named that place house of God, which is Bethel. Bethel. Um, and the point is, Jesus is now the new dwelling place of God with men. We'll see that in John 14:23, And as Jesus says in John 15, therefore we should dwell or abide in him, in Jesus. And then finally... Uh, Jesus is the coming Son of Man, verse 51 again. Son of Man was a favorite way that Jesus referred to himself. It will occur 12 times in John, 66 times in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, It comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where Daniel has a vision, and he says, I saw one approach one like a son of man, approach the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives to this one an eternal kingdom. And so this figure is godlike, because who else could have an eternal kingdom, and yet he is like a son of man. And Jesus refers to that when he's on trial. Remember when he's before the high priest, he doesn't open his mouth until the high priest says, I adjure you by the the living God to tell me whether you're the Messiah. He can't be quiet. He says, I am, and you will see the Son of God coming on the clouds with the angels in glory. And he's referring to Daniel chapter 7, to this vision of uh, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man. And uh, because of that, uh, James Boyce and J.C. Ryle both think that verse 51 is an allusion to the coming of, of Jesus Christ, the second coming. Leon Morris points out four reasons why Jesus used the term the Son of Man to describe himself. First of all, he says it was a rare term, and uh, therefore it was um, devoid of nationalistic associations. In other words, people would not view Jesus as a political messiah by using that term. Secondly, um, he says it had overtones of divinity because of the Daniel 7 connection. Thirdly, he adopted it because it implies the redeemed people of God. And fourthly, he says it had undertones of humanity, son of man. Um, Morris adds this, 
He took upon him our weaknesses. It was a way of alluding to and yet veiling his Messiahship, for his concept of the Messiah differed markedly from that commonly held. He also adds that in the Gospel of John, the term always is associated either with Christ's heavenly glory or with the salvation that he came to bring. Now, all of these gloriously piled up phrases, 12 of them at least, I think are here to show us this. Jesus is the only Savior that you or anyone else needs. He is glorious in his person. He is exalted on high. And so, friends will bring friends to Jesus. Now, I had hoped in this message to go through and explain to you about all these men who met Jesus, but that's got to wait till next time. But let me just focus on because of who Jesus is, friends bring friends to him. And we'll close with this. I think as you read through the gospel accounts and even the book of Acts, there's a striking feature. You never hear the gospel presented exactly the same way twice. There is this variety of situations and a variety of presentations of the gospel. Now, the gospel itself, of course, is the same. But what I'm getting at is there was no uniform, memorized presentation. You know, can I tell you the four spiritual laws? Or I've learned the evangelism explosion approach, and I'm going to share that outline with you. Or the way of the master. And these are fine things, and I'm not uh, putting down any of them. In fact, they're useful ways to memorize an approach to the gospel. But what I'm saying is this. Be tailored in how you share it with different people in different settings at different times. Try to sense where is this person at and what does this person need. Um, here you have the first two, Andrew and John. They're already disciples of John the Baptist. And they hear John say, Behold the Lamb of God. Boy, something clicked. I don't know, as I said, whether they heard it the day before and the second day, now it kicks in, but they just know we need, we need to go after Jesus. And so John says they followed Jesus, verse 37. I think there's, again, a case of irony or of double meaning to John. He means they walked after Jesus, but he means more than that. They began to follow Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And then when he, Jesus speaks to Philip in verse 43, he says, follow me. And the point of those following him, following him is, you cannot believe truly in Jesus as Savior without following him as Lord. They, they are linked. If you know who Jesus is, you must follow him obediently. And of course, that's a lifetime process. But... Um, if you say, well, I believed in Jesus and you're not following him, you better go back to square one. Did you really believe in Jesus? Because when you do, you follow. A second thing here to learn about bringing others to Jesus is that John the Baptist was very content to let his disciples follow Jesus rather than to follow John. And the goal of every disciple maker, and by that phrase I mean you, if you're a Christian, you're a disciple maker. 
And the goal of every disciple maker is not that you get disciples who follow you, but that you get disciples who follow Jesus. And you've got to be content to let them follow him. And uh, there's no indication, again, these men followed Jesus the first time they heard. And that should encourage us, share the gospel over and over again, even if someone has heard it. I have heard that studies show that it takes seven times on the average for a person to hear the gospel before it finally breaks through the, the surface and they go, oh, and believe in Christ. Seven times. So maybe you're number six. Maybe you're number one. Once in a while you get a bingo. You're number seven, and that's glorious when they, they pray with you to receive Christ, but just keep on sharing the message. There's another lesson here, and that is that it's by exalting Christ that people are drawn to Jesus. Um, John proclaims Jesus to be the Lamb of God. Somehow that resonated with Andrew and John, and they thought, man, if he's the Lamb, I need one because I got sin, and I need a Savior from sin. Andrew finds Peter, and he doesn't say, we found the Lamb of God. He says, we found the Messiah. And that clicks with Peter, and that piques his interest enough that he wants to go and see this one that Andrew is talking about. Nathaniel extols Jesus to uh, I mean, Pete, Philip extols Jesus to Nathaniel as the one of whom Moses, in the law and the prophets, wrote. Nathaniel, as we'll see next week, apparently was a man of the word. He studied the Old Testament, and when Philip said that, man, that clicked, and he wanted to meet him even though at first he's skeptical. Philip gives a very wise answer. Come and see. He doesn't argue Nazareth with him. He could have. You know, oh, Nazareth isn't such a bad place. That would have gotten him off on a rabbit trail. He just says, come and see. See for yourself. And he comes. And then, <clears throat> and this is interesting, and we don't know, how much did Philip know about Jesus when Jesus walks up to him and says, follow me. I don't know. There was something, though, about Jesus that when he said, follow me, he realized, i got to follow that man. And so he followed Christ. Another lesson here is this. You never know how God is going to use your witness. Here's Andrew, and he brings Peter to Christ. As far as we know in the Bible, Andrew never preached to a crowd. Peter did. And Peter led 3,000 to Christ on the day of Pentecost. That never happened for Andrew, but Peter wouldn't have done that if Andrew hadn't shared with Peter. And the interesting thing about Andrew is every time you encounter him in the Gospels, you know what he's doing? He's bringing an individual to Jesus. Bringing someone to Jesus. That's not a bad legacy, is it, to leave? that every time you're reported in the Gospels, you bring in someone to Christ. I bet most of you have never heard the name Edward Kimball. He was a Sunday school teacher back in the 1800s, and uh, he had a student in his class named Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, who was a 19-year-old shoe salesman, Kimball felt burdened for Moody's soul. Moody didn't know hardly anything about the Bible or the gospel or anything. And so one day, Kimball really felt burdened to go to the store where Moody worked and share the gospel with him. And Kimball got there, and he was almost chickened out. He was really nervous about it. 
He got in there. He said he can't remember even what he said. He stumbled all over his words. He thought he said something to him about Christ and his love. And to his surprise, Moody then and there turned his life over to Christ, became a Christian. Well, you know how God used D.L. Moody. He held campaigns in the U.S., went over to England. Tens of thousands of people responded to Moody's preaching and became Christians. And today, uh, the legacy carries on with Moody Bible Institute, where thousands of Christian workers have been trained and are being trained to go out all over the world with the gospel. Humanly, it all began with a man named Edward Kimball, who was a faithful Sunday school teacher who just shared Christ with one of his young men. The point is here, Jesus didn't launch his kingdom by saying, let's see, let's have a mass mailing to everybody in Israel, and uh, let's form a corporation, and you guys will be on the board, and we've got to raise big bucks, and, you know, let's buy a blimp. No, that isn't how it started. John the Baptist said, behold the Lamb. Two guys followed. One of those guys found his brother. He followed. Another guy follows. He goes, finds his friend, and he follows. And we've got the makings of the kingdom of God right there. And they all got excited about who Jesus was. And they all couldn't contain themselves. They had to tell their friends. And that's how the Lord wants the good news to spread in Flagstaff. Are you excited about who Jesus is? I hope so. If you are and you've got friends, you're going to tell them. You know, there's a book out on the book table called 8 to 15. Some of you have used it in our home fellowships. And that book is basically encouraging you, identify 8 to 15 people in your life that you normally have contact with in a week or on a regular basis and begin praying for them. Just begin praying for them. And God works through prayer, and first thing you know, you'll be in a conversation with Him. And then, extol Jesus. Extol Jesus. That's how people are drawn to Christ, is by exalting Him. And uh, Jesus is the only Savior, the only one that bridges the chasm between God and man. And so as we lift Jesus up and tell our friends, the kingdom of God grows. Dear Father in heaven, I pray that you would use us, first of all, captivate our hearts with how great Jesus is, that we would be in love with him, that we would be overwhelmed with him in his glory, his majesty, his humility, his grace. And then, Lord, as we're full to the brim of him, just set us next to people where we slop over on them with the good news. And use our witness, Lord, as feeble as it often is, to bring our friends, our family members, our contacts, to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And Lord, if there's any here who have never yielded their life to Jesus, I pray that you would break through the hardness of heart, that you would open their blind eyes to see who Jesus is, and that you would cause them to be born again to a living hope through faith in Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to conclude.